Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Norma Goodwin. Today, I'm joined by Rainsford Stoffer, a writer and author of All the Gold Stars, to discuss reimagining ambition and all the ways we strive. If you've ever felt like you're losing your ambition or trying to overcome your perfectionist ways, you'll love this episode. As Rainsford shares who ambition was built for, the difference between ambition and achievement, and some tangible ways you can expand your ambition for a more fulfilling life and career today. And now, this is the Career Contessa podcast. Well, hi, Rainsford. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So introduce yourself and tell us why you wanted to write your new book, All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition and the Ways We Strive. Absolutely. So I am a freelance writer and journalist who has covered a lot, sort of sitting at the intersection of work and higher education, young adulthood, and what it means to come of age, and basically anything that falls under the umbrella of how we live now and the different issues that intersect with that. What initially got me interested in ambition is actually feeling as though I had lost my own. And it was a really disorienting experience because ambition felt like the quality that let me earn anything good about myself. And so a lot of that tied into work, but a lot of it also, if we're being honest, tied into self-worth. And so kind of the catalyst for being curious about just writing about ambition for myself, just kind of researching it myself was the sensation that I had really lost mine. And over the course of reporting this book, I got to look at the different ways ambition, a certain kind of ambition is upheld in structures, in systems, how it was impacting people's relationship with work or with school, but also beyond it, and how people were reimagining ambition, which was my favorite part. I relate to this so much. I I really felt like my ambition is what got me to where I'm at. And then I had two kids and I've constantly had this feeling of like, I don't feel as ambitious as I was before. Or I feel like I'm losing my ambition and almost like this feeling of like trying desperately to hold on to what I had before, even though my life has completely changed. So I relate a lot personally to, to what you're saying about it was probably helped me a lot in work, but it was also part of my self-worth. It made me feel like a more worthy individual because I was ambitious and I was building things and going after stuff and not just okay with the status quo. I'm sure that it sounds somewhat similar to your story a little bit. 
it's so interesting because I think that there are so many versions of the story or of people's individual experiences because all of this is so personal. Yeah. There's a little bit of panic when ambition doesn't necessarily go away, but it changes. And I yes. so much about that while reporting people who became parents, people who were caregiving in other ways, people who were grieving, maybe they moved, they changed jobs. There are so many factors in our lives that shift what our wants or needs or the resources we have are at a given time. And it's so stressful to think that ambition would naturally kind of ebb and flow and change along with those changing needs or changing circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So your book, obviously, I almost think of it as almost like the study of ambition a little bit too. So who was ambition built for and how does that impact who gets to have it, right? Because it's a privilege to probably be very ambitious as well. Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. And there are so many questions kind of sitting within that question. Like, what does ambition look like? Who is considered ambitious? Who is encouraged to be ambitious versus who is told, no, you're a little too wanting. This is a little too much. You're going for it a little bit too hard. And I think it's important to say up front that ambition is certainly not separate from the cultural, structural, institutional forces that shape how we think of ambition being packaged. And all of these things are informed by gender, class, and race. I think a lot of the stereotypes of who's considered a quote-unquote ambitious person um, are typically white, able-bodied, cisgender men. And I also think that there is a certain archetype of ambition that's really upheld by white women. And of course, all of this compresses who we think of as ambitious, who we encourage to go after their goals and their dreams, and then who has the resources to think about their aspirations in the first place. And I think that that's a really important point too, that you know, for a lot of people, ambition is grounded in just trying to get by and just get through the day. And so there's this other aspirational quality to ambition of what do you want your life to look like in the long term? What feels meaningful to you that certainly not all of us have the time or the capacity or resources to spend a bunch of brain space thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. And while we might not use the word, quote, ambition with children, the concept is definitely introduced early on via gold star stickers, you know, being on top of your assignments, the academic classes that divide the students into, quote, high achieving and not. I remember when I was in school, there was gate classes for it was gifted and talented education. And some Mm -hmm. kids would go to gate classes on Wednesday. Just so everyone knows, I was not a gate kid. And I really feel like it, it builds this pressure to pick the right college and to make all these right life decisions, because obviously you want to be a high achiever. How do these early actions impact us in the long run and complicate our relationship with ambition? And you mentioned something about like achievement versus ambition, right? We've Mm. sometimes we confuse those two things. Absolutely. This is one of the things that fascinated me the most when I was reporting this, because to your point, I don't think ambitious is normally a term we would ascribe to, you know, an elementary schooler, but this idea of tracking who is a high achiever or not, who's a hard worker or not, who's got quote unquote good behavior or not, all of these are kind of grounded, in my opinion, in the same roots as stereotypical ambition. And it is really dependent on quote unquote, good behavior, high performance, and 
kids pick up on that. <laughs> kids yeah. understand. I, I remember this perfectly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's so much sitting there in the fact that, you know, I, I think all the time about how attendance for a lot of kids is entirely out of their control. Sometimes it's out of their parent or their guardian's control. I think about perfect attendance awards and not earning your bathroom passes through high achievement and all of these things that are so inherently ableist. But I think the big thing about how early this starts with young people, kind of this conflation of ambition and achievement is number one, from a very early age, I think a lot of kids are tracked onto the ambitious track or the unambitious track. And that might be as formal as something as gifted and talented programs, but I also think it can be a little bit more insidious. What kinds of kids get resources? What kind of kids are listened to when they talk to the adults in their lives and they bring up a problem? What kind of kids do we think of as quote unquote worthy of investment, which yeah. is such a disturbing way to think about human beings Absolutely. in general, but especially children. And number two, it is all really outcome oriented, you know, big achievements like graduations or acing a test or making a team. Of course, we want to celebrate those things. Of course, we want to celebrate the young people who are pursuing them. But I also think a lot gets lost when we don't acknowledge that there are lots of different ways that ambition can look. And there are lots of different achievements that are valuable and worthy and promote so much curiosity. And I think that if we expanded our definition of what it means to be ambitious, all of a sudden, so many more young people would feel supported in pursuing whatever those achievements are that really matter to them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought it was interesting when you said we might deem someone being ambitious and therefore give them more resources. I've seen this also happen at work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, let's invest more in this person because they're really ambitious and they're worthy of our time. And that's to your point, it's a really sad way of thinking about, you know, who gets the resources and who doesn't, but we've probably have all firsthand have firsthand experience of watching that happen or feeling like we're not getting the resources because somehow they've decided we're not worth investing in. It's terrible. Totally. And I, I think that that comes up in so many different spaces where it sort of individualizes these problems. Like it's your fault for not working hard enough. Yeah. You didn't do enough. There was always something more you could have done. And I think that that really fails to take into account First of all, the structural barriers that are in place that a lot of people are working to overcome and try to work through on top of doing their other work, whether that's paid work or at school or it's somewhere in between. And also, I think that when we think about who is ambitious and what an ambitious person looks like, I think that is so narrow that it makes very, it makes it very challenging to put your hand up at work or at school and say, hey, this environment isn't working for me. I think I need a different kind of support. I think I need different resources to be as successful and as fulfilled as I can be. And I think that that should absolutely be considered an ambitious act to be able to advocate for yourself in that way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How good are you at spotting a too-good-to-be-true health hack? If you're a health hack skeptic, then you deserve a multivitamin that meets your standards. Enter Ritual. I first discovered Ritual back in 2019, and I actually still take Ritual's Essential for Women prenatal vitamin today. 
First, I was taking it because I was thinking about getting pregnant. And then when I was pregnant, my doctor told me to take a daily prenatal vitamin. So I set out to find the best option for me. Ritual's ingredients are amazing. The prenatal vitamin contains 12 traceable ingredients, meaning I can see where the ingredients actually come from, which is really important to me. The prenatal vitamin is a high quality formulation made with nature identical cloline and clinically studied methylated folate to support baby's neural tube development before and during pregnancy. And Ritual Smart Capsule is designed for optimal absorption and their tested design for oily and dry ingredients means you just have to take two pills a day. I've made it a part of my breakfast routine to take it when I sit down to eat. Also, one of my favorite things about Rituals is that they are essence with either lemon or mint, so it keeps everything fresh and makes my vitamin taking experience way better. It means that you don't get that weird aftertaste with like fish oil or something like that, that you take where you burp or something, and then you can taste it later. That doesn't happen with ritual. It's just a beautiful multivitamin that you take and it doesn't make you smell or stay on and get that weird aftertaste. Nothing like that. Rituals multivitamins are also hundred percent made traceable with high quality key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. So you can totally trust that what you're putting in your body is totally good for you. And delayed release capsules are designed to dissolve later in the small intestines, which is an ideal place to absorb nutrients. Instead of striving for perfect health, aim for supporting foundational health. And great news, Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com backslash Contessa to start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus or the prenatal to your subscription today. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole. As a leading functional medicine practitioner, I have had the unique position to see so many alchemize their pain and health problems to their purpose. Now I want the same for you. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers, where there is a fresh infusion of grace and lightness into wellness. This is the art of being well. Join me every Thursday for a new episode. You called evaluation ambitions sidekick. What do you mean by that? I love it. I think a lot of how we think of ambition is very much based in metrics, in outputs and achievement. And I think that this is kind of an extension of conflating ambition or being ambitious, which is a process. It's something you engage in. It might be something you feel with an achievement, which is an outcome. And I think that Mm -hmm. the fact that those two things, they certainly overlap, but they are really distinct. And I think that the sensation of being evaluated at work, being evaluated at school, evaluating ourselves in comparison to our peers or our colleagues. I think that a lot of people would say that that motivates them, that that drives their ambition. And I think that that can be absolutely fine because again, all of this is so individual, but I think when we lose sight of the structural context of all of this, the different needs that we might have compared to a coworker, the fact that we're all at different points in our lives, even if we're in the exact same job or the exact same class, I think we lose a lot. And I think that we lose a lot of the creativity and curiosity that can be parts of ambition when we're so caught on measuring our outcomes as compared to somebody else's. 
Why do you think that we all love measuring by outcomes versus, you know, just enjoying being an ambitious person who kind of goes wherever their curiosity (laughs) takes them? Like, you know, it seems to be like one of the things I've noticed with humans is like, we really like the outcome or the result, this like black and white thing. We don't want to look under the hood. We just want to see what the top of, you know, how shiny the hood in the car is. And that came from somewhere. I'm sure this is one of those big ambitious myths or big myths about ambition too. I think that there's probably so many different ways to look at this. What comes to mind for me are are a couple different things. I think number one, American society and capitalism have done a very good job convincing us that we are all just one all-nighter or one overachievement or one accomplishment away from an idea of safety and security and being fulfilled. And I think that when we're constantly working toward that sense of fulfillment or that sense of security, of course, you're going to keep going no matter what, because we all in some form or fashion want that for our lives. And without a more robust social safety net, striving is kind of presented as the solution. So we want that outcome of security. Of course, we're all going to keep striving as best we can to get there. I think the other thing that comes up for me in terms of it being so focused on outputs is that goals are not inherently a bad thing. I've talked a lot about this because a question I've gotten a lot is, well, you're not ambitious anymore, right? Like you don't have ambitions. And that's that's not entirely true. It can be a wonderful thing to have a goal or a desired outcome to work toward. For a lot of people, that can be very motivating. It can even be inspiring. I think where we lose the plot a little is when one goal or one desired outcome eclipses everything else. When it overtakes all of our other needs, needs for belonging, needs for rest, needs to participate and be part of a community rather than kind of focused on achieving solo. And so now when I think about outcomes, I'm not sure we're going to reach a point where those outcomes or those desired goals aren't part of how we think of ambition. But I do think that we can expand them and I think that we can create pauses along the way to celebrate little milestones that may not pop up on a social script of achievement, but felt like big accomplishments to us, even if they exist outside of our work or outside of our academics or whatever it is. Interesting. I'm trying to think like for the person who's in the workplace right now, like trying to provide them an example of what that might look like. Like, you know, here's the old you and now here's going to be the new version of you where you still have goals, but you're not you're not so focused on the outcome really through the lens that you were before. Could you, can you give us maybe an example of that? Sure. I think that there's a couple in terms of work specifically. One thing that I have found very helpful, especially when I'm working on a bigger project, like a book that takes a lot of time. It's something that, you know, you, you have out in front of you is the goal you're working toward. And sometimes that can feel very far away. For me, it was important to create moments of pause or acknowledgement for what I kind of mentally referred to as the stops along the way. Like when I turned in the first draft of the book, when the book went through fact checking, these kind of little almost plot points in the journey to create this thing, slowing down and giving myself a moment of pause. And it could be as simple as, you know, I'm going to get a pastry that sounds really good just as a fun little treat to acknowledge this. I'm going to send an email to my colleague congratulating them and kind of celebrating us making it this far. I think when we give ourselves tangible actions to slow down and go, okay, 
we may not even be halfway there, but we're making progress. We're doing something. I think number one, it can lift morale a little bit and make that big achievement not seem so daunting. And I think it keeps us focused on the fact that there is a process to be celebrated amid all of this. And your ambition isn't just in the outcome. Really, your ambition is in the process. And so that was a helpful reframe. I also think in terms of work, it's good to set little goals, if that's the terminology we want to use about things outside of work. And again, I think that these things are most practical and sometimes most meaningful when they're pretty small, whether it's you're going to call your friend and check in for 15 minutes at the end of the day just to catch up. You're going to do something that feels good, that isn't related to your work, but has you feeling inspired or interested in some way. I think that those things help sustain us when we are working toward these really big work goals. They don't seem like things that necessarily support our work, but they support our well-being. And as a result, they can support our ambition too. Yeah. It's interesting because I think when people think about these pauses to celebrate, it's like, oh, I'll pick up a hobby. And somehow this hobby will help me, you know, not be put all my eggs in the work basket. And I think actually research has showed that you know, while hobbies might have been, might've been started to be the anecdote of the hyper ambitious, according to research, they often morph into something that is very achievement focused and that kind of defeats the whole point for the hyper ambitious person. How do you get out of this cycle of like, okay, you're this hyper ambitious person. You, you know, you turn your hobbies into, you know, things that you feel like you have to make money off of. Like everything just becomes constantly like you feel like you have to make the most of it. It has to be to your point about the capitalistic structure, like making money. Otherwise it it, it's, it's no good. Like it's, it doesn't have a place in your life. Yeah. First thing I'll say is this is really hard. And I think it's important to say that up front because I realized that the advice to, you know, take a pause, get a hobby, don't care so much. It all sounds a little bit unrealistic. And I think that it's important to say that up front because it can be really frustrating when you feel like you're trying to apply advice that you just don't have the capacity or time or resources to. And so I think first thing that's top of mind for me is acknowledging that it's going to look a little bit different for everyone. Different things feel good to different people and everyone's operating in their own circumstances. I think we're all trying to do the best we can and that's good enough to keep learning, keep trying and keep making changes where it feels possible. But I think a couple things about this and this first one sounds a little bit counterintuitive. I think it's really important to let more than one thing hold your ambition or your fulfillment or meaning. And I know for those of us, myself included, (laughs) that really love pouring everything into one project or one ambition that can feel a little bit unnerving. It can also feel a little bit unnerving to hear this and think, you want me to add more things into my schedule? The solution is to do more things. And so I realize that, but I also think that it kind of ties into the best writing advice I've ever been given, which is when you're stuck, go do something else. So if you have multiple outlets for your ambition, whether one of those is work, another one's a hobby, another one is really pouring into your friend group, maybe another one is mentoring younger colleagues or people coming up in your field, 
all of a sudden, when you're blocked on one thing, you have all of these other outlets where you can think creatively, you can be curious, you can derive some meaning. And that really takes some of the pressure off feeling like everything has to be productive. Everything has to be 100% at all times, which often isn't feasible. And the other thing I think that's related is anytime there's a chance to collaborate or to kind of sink into your community, I think it helps tenfold. One of the biggest pitfalls of stereotypical ambition or how it's framed is that it's very individualistic. We're all kind of in our little silos, striving toward our individual goals, and that can be so isolating. So I think that when we're cheering for each other, when there's a sense of collectivity about our work and in our workplaces, when we're working on doing something together, whether that's tangibly collaborating on a project or just going to your coworkers, your colleagues, your friends for advice or to talk through an idea, I think that that goes a long way in deepening our ambition by kind of taking it beyond just us. It makes it so we don't feel like we're as in it alone. Yeah, that's a really good point. It feels like the old version or the version of many of us are used to with the ambition is very much me against the world. You know, mm-hmm. how do I individually stack up against all these things? And I love the advice of like taking a more community-based or collective, collaborative, you know, pick pick your C word there, mm-hmm. um, a viewpoint on it. And I think I also, it makes me think of this interview we did where we were talking about how to be happy at work. And one of the key, there were three main drivers and one of them was relationships. And I even noticed this when I was doing the research for my book, relationships were the thing that gave people fulfillment and made them quote unquote happier than any other thing. And so it also makes sense that if you can move your ambition away from being this individual, isolated, lonely existence you might also be a much more happier person, which I can only imagine good things are going to come from, you know, spawn out of that as well. I think it just makes it feel so much less dire in a way. Yeah, totally. Things that, you know, I heard about achievement focused pressure or pressures of ambition were really grounded in people feeling extremely isolated. Like everyone had something figured out that they just didn't just weren't enough. And so I think anytime there's collectivity at work, whether that is unionizing, whether it is collaborating with colleagues, whether it's talking about a project or what you want your work environment to be, I think it just goes a long way in figuring out how to advocate for each other and kind of be ambitious for each other, which in turn gives us more capacity to be ambitious about more things that we care about. Inspired by her immensely popular newsletter, author Anne Helen Peterson turns her attention to the wild world of work and Crooked Media's Work Appropriate. I've been a longtime reader of Anne's newsletter, and I was so excited when this podcast came out. Work Appropriate delivers humorous but practical workplace advice for a range of listener questions from how do I get my manager to stop texting me after hours to how to deal with meeting culture that makes you want to pull your freaking hair out, right? Whether you're early in your career, mid-career, or a more senior level employee, Work Appropriate has something for you. And Helen Peterson provides helpful insights that make you feel a little less alone and crazy in this world of work. Her takes are modern and fresh, which makes the episodes so enjoyable. Plus, each episode is packed with tangible tips that you can implement yourself in your career. I actually think this is amazing because if you like this podcast, Work Appropriate is going to be the perfect addition to your podcast lineup. 
Previous show topics include how to be a better boss, how to build workplace confidence, what makes a union worth it, and what to do when your ambition is at rock bottom. And previous guests range from comedians like Josh Gondelman to people with more, quote, traditional jobs like Christina Janzer, Slack's director of research. Listen to Work Appropriate every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I know you're going to love it. I loved your recent article in Elle magazine about how that we should be ambitious about our friendships. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because again, I think of people, I think a lot of people ambition for them only lives in the world of work. And so I thought this was a real, and speaking of things that would be less isolating is like be ambitious about your friendships. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I loved interviewing experts both for that article and for the book, because that was also something that I had never really thought about before. I think that when we hear the word ambition in relation to other people, it's very easy for that to dip into things like networking or something that feels a little inherently transactional or just a little more work related than we want a lot of our friendships to feel. But the more I listened and the more I talked to people, there were so many individuals I talked to who were thinking about, you know, if we look at ambition and we think of ambition as care, intention, the drive to follow through and pursue something, motivation to pursue that thing, why would we not want to pour all of those qualities into our friendships and our communities? Of course, we want to approach them with that level of investment, with that level of care, and with that level of motivation to sustain them. So a lot of what I heard while I was reporting on this was figuring out how to take our intentions around our friendships and make them tangible, whether that was setting a friend day or a ritual with a friend that you knew you were going to practice once a month or do once a week, whatever worked for your schedule. It was reaching out more. It was letting people help when they offered to help. And again, there were so many forms that it took, but I think the thing that all of these conversations on ambition and friendship had in common is that there was going to be an equal investment and prioritization of friendships and community and care as there were about work outputs or academic achievements. And I think that that reframe really showed how profound ambition can be when we expand our definition of what it is. I love that. I I think what your book is about too and how we can help reimagine ambition just allows us to also be much more flexible and able to pivot and give ourselves more grace and being like, it doesn't always have to be an outcome. The ambition, I was ambitious today, even if I didn't get the outcome. I mean, at least that's one of the takeaways for me is, is, you know, kind of working through this feeling of like, okay, am I losing my ambition and realizing I'm not losing my ambition. The outcomes are looking different, but I still have goals. I still have things I'm working toward. I still have things that I'm invested in and excited about and things that I get purpose and fulfillment from. And at least for me, that was one of the takeaways ways is just rethinking or reimagining my ambition. And also kind of to your point, it's, it's hard. And I am not, I'm not saying I like, it's a blank statement on how I'm reimagining it, but it's also opened my eyes to sort of relooking at it a different way. Also kind of feeling like, okay, there was a perfect trap set up for all of us to fall into this. And so we have to almost like re uh, unlearn what we were taught from a very young age about ambition and achievement and outcomes. I'm so glad that that was one of the takeaways because, I mean, that's also what I learned personally while reporting. And I think that there's so much emphasis starting from the time, like we said, you know, we're in school 
school and we're young and it carries through the workforce and the larger system of capitalism where a lot of times people don't have the very basic resources that they need. There's still this idea of the perfect trajectory where if you do these things in this order, you're ambitious about them, you stay the course, it's going to turn out okay in the end. And I think that that narrow one size fits all approach to ambition, number one, leaves a lot of people out. And number two, it really limits what our ambition can be. One of my favorite parts of the book was hearing from people whose ambition had changed really significantly, where all of a sudden their goals shifted and maybe those goals expanded. Maybe they were entirely new ones, but there was so much self-discovery and community and creativity sitting in that ambition. And I think it's a little bit ironic that if we can expand our definition of what it means to be ambitious for ourselves, for each other, for the things we care about, in a lot of cases, it can actually make us more ambitious. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I think, and I'm kind of using the word girl boss right now as a way to encompass all of it, but the quote unquote girl boss culture, the hustle culture, I do not think that was doing us any favors. I think we we were trying to create some independence, but to your point, it was very isolating. I think it pushed people more to burnout than it did to, you know, what the ultimate goal was. How do you feel about that? You know, us all being on the other side of a pandemic and sort of this quote unquote, girl boss culture, hustle harder situation and writing this book? Like were were there some moments where you're like, wow, we were doing this all wrong a few years ago? I think honestly, a version of this has probably existed even beyond and even before that. I think the things that came up for me during the pandemic, especially and throughout the pandemic have been that we need structural changes to work and to society that don't force people to be ambitious about something as basic as having our basic needs met. Yeah. Overwork (laughs) should not be a requirement to earn security and self-worth. It just shouldn't be. And so I think that that's the big structural one that comes up again and again. If we had more resources, if people had things like paid leave or universal basic income, if people had more autonomy over their work life, there is no telling what people would be ambitious about. We're losing out on so many incredible ambitions just by virtue of the fact that overwork is driving so much of it. So I think that that's part one. And also, but I think that that ties directly into part two, which is that, you know, for as often as we're trying to achieve or at work or at school, I think that for so many people, that's really grounded this hustling, this urgency around work, this outcomes oriented approach is about earning self-worth. It's about feeling like you have done enough to get to stop and be safe and enjoy anything and feel okay about yourself. And I think as long as our self-worth, our basic resources, our ambition is contingent on satisfying some standard, we're always going to fall short because that's yeah. the design of the system. Yeah, and, I was gonna say it's the yeah. trap. It's 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 exactly what they want, you know. <laughs> it is. And so I think the more opportunities we can take to stand together and push back on that, the better off our ambition is going to be. And I think that there is absolutely an ambition that exists outside this hustling, grind life, nonstop mentality. And in a lot of ways, I think it's the more sustainable version of ambition. 
Absolutely. I think that is a great note to end on. Your book is called All the Gold Stars. Let people know where they can follow you, buy the book, all the all the links so we can put those in the show notes as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm on Twitter as long as Twitter hangs on at Rainsford, my first name. I'm on Instagram at Rainsford underscore Stoffer. And you can buy all the gold stars anywhere you buy books. If you can buy it from your local independent bookstore or ask about it at your library. Amazing. Thank you, Rainsford. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Career Contessa podcast. Don't forget to rate and review our show. Your ratings really do make a difference in helping our show grow. And we're very grateful for that. Lastly, don't forget to pick up a copy of All the Gold Stars wherever you buy your books. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.